Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Side note here. I recognize the grace of God. I, I see the grace of God in a few of the ladies in our church weekly. Having a deaf ministry has some challenges to it. One of them is, is that you need to be flexible. I have learned this over the time. Because things happen, and you have to depend on interpreters <laughs> at various different times. And these ladies are so consistent. They keep doing it. <laughs> even when they have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say <laughs> and even when they have no idea how to sign the song that is filled with metaphors and you say well what does that matter if a song is filled with metaphors you understand well <laughs> Well, folks, metaphors are very difficult to understand. If you live in a world that's filled with pictures, and the pictures, you use language that uses pictures to explain something. That's what a metaphor is. It's contradictory. Just leave it at that. When you think you've got it, you don't. <laughs> It's hard. You have to explain the pictures. I listened to Tom this morning and he explained concepts. It was very good. It was very literal. Clear. Not very many pictures. And so when you add songs and hymns that have pictures, they just kind of go over the head sometimes. So y'all pray for us as we try to learn to minister everybody in our body it's important for us to think this way you know just a side note on this how many of you would like to hear a sermon for an hour and 15 minutes solid the whole time some of you say yeah that'd be great I'd love an hour and 15 minute sermon well I found out this week that the deaf hear an hour and 15 minute sermon every week and then they hear another hour and 15 minute sermon. So I want to tell you something. You say, how do they hear that? Because there is no music. Every song is a sermon. More words. I want to give you a, a little thing here. I once heard that deaf people can't have as long of an attention span. They have a better attention span than us hearing. Music keeps the hearing person awake and attentive for the first half of the service. You guys are seeing sermons the whole time. You can learn something from your brothers and sisters that are deaf. They are very disciplined. They listen to two and a half hours of sermons every week. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful you're here. I've learned so much doing this. On to Luke chapter 3. In Mark chapter 15, verse 11... On the night in which, or at the trial, when Jesus 
was on trial. And the chief priests were looking at Jesus. And Pilate was bringing up for Jesus to be killed or let go. The chief priests and the crowd chose Barabbas. And Pilate asked a question. A question that I want everyone in this room to mark. I want you to mark this down. This is the question I have for you this week. I want you to think about this question all week long. One question. Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? What shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? You might ask the question to me. Why should I worry about this question? It's a done deal. They answered the question and he died. But that question has profound, great under, uh, consequences for our lives. What will you do with Jesus this week? What do you do with him daily? What do you do with him every minute of the day? I think it's a profound question and you'll see as we go along in our passage today. What you do with Jesus is demonstrated by your lives. I have a question. Are you going to be like the crowd that yells, crucify him? That's what they said. The next phrase, crucify him. What shall I do with him? Crucify him. How many in here, by raise of hands, said crucify him this week? How many in here said or would say right now, what are you going to do with Jesus? How many in here would say crucify him? Is there anybody? Oh, one person understands the sermon before I start. Ladies and gentlemen, our actions demonstrate the answer to that question. Our actions d demonstrate whether we're not whether or not we're saying save him or kill him. If we are obeying and there are no idols, then we're saying, no, I love him. But if we're in sin and there's idols in our hearts, we're saying, kill him. You'll see as we go along. What are you going to do with Jesus? What do we do with this Jesus? Let's look. Today, we're going to see the focus of the attention in Luke turns completely to Jesus. It was on John the Baptist. But now the attention of the passage is all on Christ. And for the rest of our study of Luke, we are going to be talking about Jesus every week. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's probably going to take me years to get through this book. And all I'm going to do is talk about Jesus every week. And you know what? I can't wait. He is glorious, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to see a testimony and a confirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Someone who we should take great pleasure in. Let's read our passage in Luke chapter 3. Verses 21 to 23. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You 
are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Let's pray. Father, we go to your word now and we ask that you help us. Lord, we are needy people. To understand your word is impossible apart from your grace. Oh God, please help us. Help us to understand who Christ is more. Help us to love him and cherish him and prize him above all else. As, Father, you do. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray now that we will get a glimpse of our Savior. And we will worship him with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at four proofs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is the proof that Jesus is who he said he is. I want you to notice first. The proof of Jesus' own works. The proof of Jesus' own works. Now, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized while he was praying. Now it's important for us to note that all here does not mean every person on the entire planet at that time. It means all the people that believed. All the people that had repented and trusted and believed and believed in John's message got baptized. Then it says, Jesus was also baptized. My question, did Jesus get baptized because he was unclean? Did Jesus get baptized because he had a sin problem? The answer is, no. Jesus was perfect. So why in the world did Jesus get baptized? Well, it's because he was obeying the Father. This again shows who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Just a side note here. How many of you in here, don't raise your hand, obeyed God all week long? Never sinned once. Thankfully, nobody raised their hand. Only Jesus Christ obeyed all the time, perfectly, even in baptism. He was baptized out of obedience. Notice what it says here in Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. At the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, So John's talking to Jesus and says, Stop! I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, because, or for, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. What is it? Jesus got baptized to fulfill, complete, finish all righteousness. To be perfectly righteous. To obey all that the Father had him to do. Again, what did we find from the cross? Remember? Finished. He did everything God did. Say it. He starts here. He's doing the same thing. Always to do what is right. Always to do it. This demonstrates he is the one to be worshipped in this room. He is the one that we should be exalting. Anybody that did not sin at all last week, I'd like for you to stand up. I would worship that. I would acknowledge that. Wow! You did not sin last week? If you say you did, by the way, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. First John says that. If you said you, you say you do not sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. You are a liar if you say you did not sin. 
There's only one to be worshipped in this place. Jesus. He is the only one that fulfilled all righteousness. Second, also, Jesus showed dependence in this baptism. It says that he was praying. After being baptized, he was praying. His dependence on the Father through prayer in his humanity, he was constantly praying. This is an ongoing pattern of Christ's life. And we'll see it throughout. In Luke chapter 5, it says this, But Jesus himself would often, mark that note, often, often, look at that. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus busy? (laughs) Yeah, he was busy. I mean, he healed thousands of people. (laughs) People were always wanting to hear him. But what does it say? He often slipped away into the wilderness to do what? Pray. This is an ongoing pattern of of the Messiah. How much more should we? If he's completely dependent upon God the Father... How much more should we, right? He was all about prayer. At his baptism, his whole entire life. Notice in Luke 6 it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. His whole night. Why? He was completely dependent upon the Father. And he was one of the members of the Trinity. Constantly depending on the Father. What does that speak to us? Even in the baptism, he was prayerful. All times, he was prayerful. This is a pattern all the way through Luke. This shows that what? He's the Christ, the Son of God. How many of you go to the Lord at all times, in all circumstances, when you're dealing with difficulties? You don't, do you? How many of you prayed over all decisions this week? How many of you prayed for God to help you to be holy all week long? How many of you were dependent upon the Lord all week long? In prayer and petition. If you say you did, be careful. Because you didn't. Jesus shows proof that he is the Son of God, the Christ, by his works. His actions demonstrated it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Second, there's proof that he was the Son of the God, the Christ. By the Spirit's anointing. The Spirit's anointing. Notice it says, Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. This is obviously a miracle visit. This isn't normal. (laughs) But it says, Jesus is the one. When the, Messiah, when the Holy Spirit did this, he said, this is it. This is the one. By doing that action. The Spirit's arrival marks Jesus as the Messiah. Points out, shows the world that this is the one. Now, what does this mean that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove? How many of you have seen the pictures of the dove? Oh, you've seen it, right? Did the Spirit become an actual dove? No. I want you to look at a word here. Like. Like. That is a metaphor. (laughs) It's a picture. It's not saying literally the Spirit became a dove. The, the, the dove is a picture of how, and I think it's important for you to note, it also doesn't say what he looked like or he took the form of a dove. It doesn't say that either. Notice, it says, And the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form 
like a dove. Now the question is, is this like a dove describing the bodily form? Is it describing what he looked like or is it describing how he descended? That's important too. You say, why is that important? One of, one of you came up to me afterwards and asked uh, at, between the services, how heavy was the cross? It's a good question. How heavy was the cross that Jesus held? I have absolutely no idea. You know why the Lord probably did not give us all these informations about details? Because we have a tendency to make idols out of objects. If he told us how heavy the cross was, more of those people we saw pictures of last week would have the cross exactly that heaviness. And they would make it about carrying around a cross that weighed the same heaviness of what Christ is about. In the same way, people draw pictures of the Holy Spirit. And they draw pictures of the Holy Spirit so that they can have a picture in their mind of what God looks like. Somewhat like our pictures of Jesus, right? And you know what they do? They make the Spirit look like a dove because of this passage. And the passage doesn't want you to have a picture in your head of what God looks like. It doesn't mean that. He's not telling you what He looks like. He's telling you how He ascended. It's the descent is like a dove coming down slowly like this onto the sun. Why? Why is that important? Well, let me ask you a question. If I do this, I'm going to act it for you. I have a picture of my hand, we'll assume. And it went... It's right there. Only a few people see it. Just in a second. Split second. Very few people would notice, right? If a crowd of thousands were looking on and boom, over, you wouldn't see it. It has to do with making identification of the Messiah. He goes slow to do this. Jesus. That's the job of the Spirit. That's the role of the Spirit. It's to say, the Messiah, Jesus, He's the one. He's the one you should worship. He's the Messiah. Do you get this? Why is that important? You go to the Assemblies of God or Pentecostal or the Charismatic Movement and they make the worship service about the Dove. About the Spirit. But the Spirit is not about Himself. He's not about exalting Himself. He's about pointing out the Messiah. Why is He about pointing out the Messiah? Because Jesus is the Savior. See, the Spirit is all about Christ and exalting Him. Do you see a common pattern here? What's the pattern? The pattern is this. Our lives must be all about the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. And the same is true here of the Spirit. The Spirit marks him out and confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's look on. Third, the proof of the Father's testimony. These are some special words. I want you to mark your Bible. Mark these words. It says literally, a voice came out of heaven. You are pointing to Jesus, talking about Jesus. You are my beloved son. In you am I well pleased. <clears throat> oh, that, that phrase is just staggering. It's a beautiful phrase. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. A voice out of heaven is not a common theme. This doesn't happen very often. God very rarely spoke from heaven to humanity. There are only 
three recorded in the New, Te- in the New Testament two ti- three times. One of them here, and it's recorded in the other Gospels, two of the other Gospels also, and one at the Mount of Transfiguration, and one right before Jesus is to die. This is like, how many of you when you were growing up heard the sermon, when, or the, the commercial, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Anybody remember that commercial? What it was is they had the busyness of the world just going crazy. Really loud. Everything's loud. And a guy's walking by, and he's an insurance salesman or something. And he says, well, my broker says such and such. And the guy, everything's still loud. And the guy says, who is he? He's E.F. Hutton. What does he say? E.F. Hutton. And everything gets soft. Everything gets quiet. This is like, okay, time to listen to this broker. He's supposed to be real good. Well, he crashed like every other person when the bond market crashed. Here, though, when God speaks, the Father speaks, it's like, stop, listen, put down your books, mark down, get your notepad. He's about to say something important. This one here, this one's my beloved son. This one here, I'm well pleased with. Oh, folks, we can get a lot from this. Matthew 17, 5, it happened again. And it's interesting, the words are almost the same. Look, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And this was at a different time. The Father says almost the same words. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What does that say about this Jesus? Well, look at it. Listen. These words give you confirmation of Jesus' identity. Who He is. You are my Son, says, I have a relationship with you. The Father, God, has a a relationship with Jesus. A special relationship. Also, he he is his beloved son. That is, he has an affectionate relationship with him. A personal commitment to him. Luke, my little boy, when he takes a nap, there are days when he takes a nap, when he finishes his nap, are some of the sweetest moments in all of my life. Because when he gets a good nap, he runs out with his hair going everywhere. It's a good nap. And he runs out and says, Hi, Daddy! Big smile. Just too literally. Yesterday it was like, Granddaddy and Grandma were in, and he said, All right, then we get to go see Grandma and Granddaddy. When I see that, there is a pleasure that flows out of my heart when I see my children. When I see that, there is no joy greater in all of my heart other than Christ himself. Here we have the Father himself saying, I am well pleased with you, my son. There's a song I want you to look up on the internet. Look up the words. Write it down. You got your pens. Write it down. It's called The Pleasures of the King. The Pleasures of the King. It's written by my favorite artist, Steve Green. Yeah, I'm an old guy. I like old music. Steve Green. He starts out talking about what makes God happy. What brings joy to God? And he starts with the creation. He talks about the mountains and the sea and the 
and the eagle soaring and the newborn cry of life, all these things just bring joy to God the Father. All these things bring great joy to the Father. You know, you guys, he looks at you, he smiles. There's joy in seeing his creation. The butterflies, the creation, he's just, wow, these are the pleasures of God. And then he moves on and he says, to see children grow and flourish, his children, people repent from sin and commit to Christ, that brings pleasure to God, joy to God's heart. It also brings joy to heart to God's heart when he fixes a person, helps their broken heart, comforts them and they find joy. These are the things that bring joy to God's heart. This is what Steve's talking about. To heal the broken body, to mend the broken heart, to knit together healthy homes that once lay torn apart. These are the things that bring joy to God. But he says this in the fourth verse, and it is perfect for this. And it nails it better than anything. He says this, But of all... God's regal, royal pleasures, all of his kingly pleasures, all of his things that he sees that he's lord over, one stands above everything else. One stands above all. It's the son he gave to serve and save in perfect holiness, existing pure and faultless, the embodiment of truth. He's perfect. The greatest joy in the Father's heart are the other two members of the Trinity. The Father rejoices over the Son. There is infinite an uncountable amount of pleasure that the Son brings to the Father. That's what he's saying when he says that. In you, I am well pleased. Now, why am I getting into this? Why am I digging into just well pleased? Why is that so important? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to get this. If you get nothing else from the sermon, this is it. The Father rejoices in the Son. It is the thing that makes Him the most happy. The Father knows the creation. He knows you. He's happy about you. But He rejoices over Christ. In you I am well pleased. What are the implications for us? What is the implication for you? If the Creator God, the all-knowing God, finds infinite pleasure with the Son, shouldn't we too? Shouldn't He be our greatest delight? Shouldn't the, shouldn't the Son, shouldn't Jesus when you wake up in the morning, you are my greatest pleasure, Christ. Shouldn't he? I was talking with Josh this week about the problem that we all have here. Everybody in this room, we all have the same problem. You know what that is? We are idol-making factories. We make idols. I'll never get over it. As long as I live, I talk to my sons about the golden calf. And they laugh at the calf. Who would make a golden calf? I agree. Who would make a golden calf? And then I realize I do it too. Let me tell you, folks. Infinite pleasure. The Son is infinitely pleasing. We say, no, I think I want my fleshly desire of lust. 
instead. I want my money. I love money. Golden calf. I want my way to be done, not God's way to be done. I want to be in control. Golden calf. What are we doing? We're replacing the glorious, all-beautiful, all-pleasing Savior for an idol. Every time we sin, ladies and gentlemen, we say no to the Savior, the all-pleasing one, and say yes to what I want. And what is that, ladies and gentlemen? That is us standing with that same question saying what? Crucify Him! Kill Him! And He's the all-pleasing one. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, look at Psalm 17. 17.14 says, For men, from men with your hands, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied in your likeness when I awake. What is so important about that? Look, listen closely, think. What's he saying? Look, he's saying... The world finds their satisfaction in these things. I find my satisfaction in you. I'm pleased with you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a problem. If I preach on Jesus next week, if I preach on Jesus next week and I preach the same sermon, what would you do? You'd say, I'm in fight, staying awake like I'm struggling now because it's hot. No! You would punch your face, you'd do whatever so you can know him more. I find all satisfaction with the one that the Father is well pleased with. When I am not well pleased with him, I am doing what? Exchanging him for an idol. Myself. And that is absolutely crazy. I love my children. I love Andrew. I love Caleb. I love Luke. But they don't compare to Christ. They don't even come close to Christ. I'm sorry. I love you a lot. But you don't compare to Christ. He is the one that gives me all joy and all pleasure. He is the one I've made and been made to love and to serve and to worship. And it's where I find my greatest joy. If the Father is well pleased with Him, how much more should we be well pleased with Him? Are you well pleased with the Son? Look, Psalm 63. When he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. To see your power, your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Talking about God. So I will bless you. As long as I live, I will lift up my hands in your name. What is the point? It's worship. It's acknowledging the great value of Christ. I know where you're struggling. I know what you're thinking. 
Well, Mike, when I go to work, he ain't the first thing on my thoughts. I've got to get my job done. Then guess what? You're not thinking through him. You're thinking about work instead of him. You're there to serve him. You're there to know him. A relationship that you have. It's all about him. It's what glorifies him if you're single. It's really all about Christ. This is it. This is why the Spirit says, this is it. This is why the Father says, He is the one. It's all about Him. Jesus is the all-satisfying Christ, the Son of God. What is, by the way, satisfied? I didn't get to look that up. Satisfied. That's the word we were talking about in the song. Yeah, satisfied. But why? What's the picture? Filled up? Filled up, maybe. Ah, I like it. Filled up. You get the gist? You got them all up to here. I'm completely filled up. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with what? Christ. Take everything away. I'm satisfied with Christ. Are you? Are you? Okay, let's do a test. Ready? Brenda, what if I died this week? Mike, talking to myself, what if Brenda died this week? What if we lost all our children? What if we lost our job? What if your parents' children died? Wow. What if you lost everything? I'm satisfied. He's pleasurable. He has to be your priority. This is why the Spirit says, that's the one. This is why the Father says, this is the one. And His lineage does the same thing. The proof of Jesus' own lineage says He's the one. Now, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm tempted to come back and do it next week. I'm not going to put all the names up there. All of you say, why not? <laughs> well, look, there is a time and a place for me to go through every name, and this isn't it. Okay? If you have a question about any name on that list, I want to help you. <laughs> but there's a point that Luke's getting at when he writes this. And this is what we want. I want you to get this and listen closely. And this is your last point. Y'all stay with me. Luke had a reason for writing all those names down. Why did he write all those names down? Because he wanted to show that he was one smart dude and could remember names. No. He wrote all those names down to make a point that Jesus is the one. <laughs> He's the one that came all the way from Adam. Why is that important? Because, see, there has to be a man-child that comes to save humanity. And he has to come from the lineage of Adam. And so Luke, if you look at your Bible, he records names 
all the way back, the father, the father, the father, the father, the father, the father, all the way down to Adam. Right? And his whole point is to do the same thing that verses 21 and 22 say. I have to admit, the first time I read verses 21 and 22, I thought to myself, these two verses aren't connected to anything. They sit there all by themselves. And then I got this big list of names. What in the world was Luke thinking? He was thinking perfectly. Perfectly logical. John the Baptist has just said Jesus is the one. The Spirit has just said Jesus is the one. The Father has just said Jesus is the one. Now his lineage, his descendants are listed to say Jesus is the one. That's what this is all about. It ends with the phrase that Adam, the son of God. Adam was created, right? Jesus was not created. However, Jesus was the second Adam. The second man that came to do what? Make up for Adam. And to make up for all that sin that's in our lives. So it's important. Notice Genesis 3.15 says. Oh, I didn't get there. Ah, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's not there. I'll come back. There it is. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is back in Genesis 3.15. He's talking to the Satan. The serpent. God is. I, God, will put enmity, fight between you and the woman. Between your descendants, children, and her descendants. And he, singular, he, one, her seed, he, one, shall bruise your you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Some descendant of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, a descendant of Adam and Eve, would do what? Bruise the head of Satan. Put an end to Satan. Who is this? This is Jesus. Luke records the descendants all the way from Adam and Eve. One of the seeds shows up. This is the one. He did it. He's the one. But he's still God, as we know, because Joseph is not his real father. I can explain that some other time. Let's close with this. I feel like sometimes I'm saying something and it's not really clicking. I hope it is. I want to do a little bit of a test again. If God made it very clear that Jesus was the one by showing lineage for thousands of years with precision... And he says and makes a point that Jesus is the one and spends ages and ages and ages of pointing just to this one man that's coming. And it's all about this one man. It's all about him. How much more should he be what we're all about too? How many of you worried about money this week? Don't raise your hand. How many of you complained about the circumstances you had this week? 
How many of you argued with your wife this week? How many of you mistreated somebody this week? How many of you just did something mean to somebody? Do you realize that you yelled crucify him when you did that? The all-pleasing one. There is joy in repentance. (laughs) Turn and embrace the Savior. He loves you. He came to die for you. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, needy people. Prideful. Full of fleshly desires. Putting idols above you. Oh, God. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment and punishment. God, please help us to see what we have done to your son, your well-pleasing son. Change us, God. Help us to value Christ above anything else. Oh God, please help us to be different. Help our country. Help our community. Help this church, God. We are sinners. And we reject you and your glorious son for garbage. Why? God, help us to be satisfied with Christ. Please, God, help this church be satisfied with Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.